This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Mike was born and raised in northern Utah. Crystal was born in Oklahoma and has lived around the world with her father's military career. Mike was raised a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and served a two-year mission in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And Crystal was introduced to the church in North Carolina and was baptized at age 17. They met in West Jordan the Sunday after October General Conference 1994. Two weeks later, they were engaged. They were sealed in the Salt Lake Temple on February 1st, 1995, and 10 months later, they welcomed their first child and only daughter. Four sons followed. They have raised their family in Lehigh, Utah, until they were able to move to Washington, Utah in 2017. The three boys still living at home were thrilled, but none more than their youngest son, Seth. So welcome to the Still Rowing Podcast. I'm your host, Tara McCausland, and I want to welcome the Davies uh, onto the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to be with me. Thank you. Now I have to uh, tell our listeners, so the Davies are actually are in my stake, and um, I heard Mike speak, uh, I guess it would have been a probably a year and a half ago mm-hmm. at a state conference and was blown away by your faith in such a hard thing. And so I am so grateful for your willingness to share a very tender story, but I know that there will be many who need to hear your message of hope because we all know someone who have lost a loved one to suicide. But before we delve more into that, I'd love to hear more about just your upbringing. And in fact, Crystal, I mentioned in your bio that you became a member at age 17. Um, And Mike, though you were raised in the church, I'd be interested to know when you were really converted to the church. So Crystal, if you'd like to start us off and share more about yourself and your introduction to the church. Well, sure. As I said, my, or as you said, my dad was in the military and we lived all around the world and he would often have us prepare for the next move by learning something about where we'd be going. And when we moved to Germany, we learned a little German. And when we moved to Puerto Rico, we learned a little Spanish. He found out his last assignment would be to Salt Lake City, Utah. Fort Douglas was um, going to be his last assignment before he retired. And he wanted us to learn a bit about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So he called our neighbors, who he knew were Mormons, and they said, we've got the perfect people to tell you about the, the church. And within 24 hours, the missionaries were knocking on our door. Uh, we were taught the discussions in North Carolina and we moved to Utah. It was the end of my junior year of high school, which is not a great time for a teenager to move, but it was one of the best things that could have happened because I met two great friends, um, Julie Williams and Crystal Utter, and they just lived the gospel. And when the missionaries came to welcome this new na- these new neighbors in Bountiful, I wanted to hear more, and I was ready to hear more. They challenged me to uh, pray about joining the church, and because of these two friends, Julie and Crystal, I 
was very interested in learning more. And um, I, I was baptized at the end of my junior year of high school. Bountiful is my waters of Mormon, hmm. where I came to know the Lord. Awesome. And so for you, Mike, I know that you had been raised in the church, but I think for all of us, we, whether or not we were born into the church or we join later on in life, there has to be a point where we choose it for ourselves. When was that point for you? That was at 23, really. So baptized at eight and converted at 23. I guess it's better late than never. Um, you know, and that, that's a real thing. We see that all around us. We see people that, uh, you know, they come to church or, or maybe they, they don't come all the time. But you wonder, why, don't, why aren't they fully converted? And I guess I don't really know the answer to that. But um, for me, I realized that the path that I was on at the time wasn't going to lead anywhere I wanted to go. Um, and that in my heart, I always known the gospel was true. And I decided that that was really the only path that had the promise of leading to a future that looked good. And so when, when did that realization dawn on you? That would have been in October of 1991. Okay. And was there any particular incident that occurred or was just a, an evolution of, okay, I want a different life. <laughs> there, there are some influential people um, around me. Um, and I realized that if I was going to have what they had, I had to be like they were. And uh, clearly there was, there was a difference there. But uh, a wise bishop, when I finally decided that I needed to go and see the bishop, said, you need to read the Book of Mormon. He said, you need to read The Miracle of Forgiveness and the Book of Mormon. And I'd never read either one of those books before. So I undertook that effort and I read them very quickly. This was, this was a real, I don't know how to describe it, maybe an Alma the Younger sort of about face. It was extreme and it was, and it was very quick. And uh, at some point along that, I'm, I received a, a very direct communication uh, that was most unexpected and quite honestly, not very welcome. That was, <laughs> Michael, you need to serve a mission. Uh, that had never crossed my mind because I was on the cusp of 24 years old. I owned a house. Um, that oh, was wow. not in my plans, but um, I decided that obedience was was the way that I had to go and do that. And uh, that I, I, I figured if that's what the Lord wants of me, he'll open the way. It didn't seem possible from where I stood, um, but in fact, it did happen. And uh, the next spring, I was off to the MTC to serve a mission in Buenos Aires at the age of 24. Well, I can appreciate the faith that that would take. How would you say that experience as a missionary changed you and prepared you for later events in your life? It's impossible to quantify you know, what that mission experience does for, for an individual, what it did for me. It takes uh, an awful lot of the, the selfishness and the sniveling out of, <laughs> out of boys and uh, turns us into something a little bit more respectable. It's not, it doesn't complete the process, but it certainly jumpstarts it. I suspect that you both look back on the experiences that you had as Crystal, as you found the gospel and started 
living a new life in some respect. And uh, Michael, as you had that turnabout and served a mission and moved forward, I would love to hear as we move forward in your story, how your connection to the church and your testimony of the gospel has brought you through some of your hardest moments. So you met in 1994 and were married not too long after. So tell us about your family growing and and moving forward from there. Uh, So we just, we raised our family in Lehigh and love, love Lehigh. We're so grateful for our friends and neighbors there. And in fact, we talk with neighbors there about how we grew up together with our neighbors. We were all, you know, young newlyweds with young families and then our fam our children grew together and it was we our hearts were knit together in that neighborhood in Lehigh and uh there we lived what we'd started you know we talked about how we came to know the Lord in those moments me with the missionaries and my two friends and and Michael with uh the experiences that he just shared and then it was those early years of of our young family that we had to put it to practice, taking the kids to church every Sunday, as every young family knows, is not easy, but you go and you go every week and you just stand in the hall while they cry or need their nap or whatever it is. And, and it's that um, dedication that is so is such a blessing because our children knew that we knew we were where we were supposed to be. And we always, you know, and so we just, we raised our family. We are so thankful for those neighbors there. Um, And then our daughter married the boy right across the street, which was the coolest thing ever, (laughs) best family in the world. And uh, shortly after she married him, we were able to move down here. And by that point, our, so she was married. And then our son, our oldest son was on in the army reserves and he was out of the, or was about to be out of the country. So we had the three other boys that we moved to Southern Utah with. Our middle child was a senior in high school, and he was all over this idea of moving to Southern Utah while he was a senior in high school. He thought that was very cool. Which is did. amazing. I don't hear that very often. <laughs> and in fact, we, we would have waited. We didn't, there was no urgent need to move. Um, but he was really anxious to be down here a senior year, and he certainly made the best of it. Yeah, he did great. He did great. He was was, what valedictorian, and anyway, he did really well. So he he enjoyed. He had a good senior year, and uh, and then here here we are. So, well, you had mentioned in your bio that no one was more thrilled than Seth about moving to Southern Utah. Why was that? And what what can you share about Seth? So Seth is our youngest, and uh, Seth all along had been so anxious to come down and. And I'll tell you one one sort of side note. You know, we had no idea that Seth was most likely struggling with anxiety. We think this is what um, led to the events that we'll be talking about. He is extremely smart, very very intelligent. Michael is extremely smart. Our boys, our children, are all very intelligent. And I think Seth Seth's IQ may have. Um, topped all of us because he just was from a very young age, very, very, very intelligent. If he was struggling with anxiety, which we think is what led to this, he didn't want anybody to know. And it was hidden 
we've talked over the years, you know, we had, he's our youngest. We've talked with the kids about, we're very open with feelings and we're here to help you. And, you know, we're a team and it was, it never even crossed our minds that this might be something that he was struggling with or that he would, that this would be the story we'd be sharing with you today. Those sorts of things only happen to other people, right? They never Mm -hmm. happened in your house. Um, But he, we wonder sometimes he was so excited to move to Southern Utah. And for all we know, it extended his life because he loved it here. He had good friends here. He had good friends up North as well. But, you know, we might talk about um, feelings of guilt or what if maybe we shouldn't have moved or, uh, you know, second guessing that we took our family down here. But for all we know, it extended his life because he was truly so happy to be here. He loved it down here. He loved being outside. He loved the weather. He loved everything about Southern Utah. Going in the swimming pool. When, when we, yeah, he liked going dirt biking, which we, we tried to do. He, uh, when we came down here over Christmas break of 2016, I'm doing the math right. Uh, and we were looking around places to buy a house or build a house. And he was angry that we went home without actually pulling, you know, buying a house. That, <laughs> that was pretty upsetting to him. He wanted to do it right then and there. Well, as you had mentioned, Mike, you know, these types of things, these heartbreak moments when, for instance, when a child chooses to take their life, that that doesn't happen to us. That happens to other people. And so, as you said, there was no uh, predicting that Seth would have chosen this. And often life won't go according to plan and our worst nightmare becomes our reality. And as we've mentioned, Seth chose to to take his life almost exactly two years ago, correct? Two years and a day, one day, yep. So what can you tell us about that day and the, the events of that day and how you coped the hours and the days just after his passing? This is human nature to want to replay this in, in your head and, and think if I had done this, if I had said that, if only, if only, if only. Um, those are not helpful exercises And it's something you have to steel yourself against because you cannot do it again. You you don't get do-overs and you can't change what's in the past. Um, What happened, uh, I came home and uh, came in through the garage door. And from the garage door, you can see down the hallway into our bedroom. And as I opened the door, um, I heard him and I could feel the presence, something above me and to my right. It was real enough that I could tell where it came from. And he said, this was a mistake. Hmm. At that precise instant, I opened the door and I, I see what has happened. And, and those few words that he was permitted, I guess, to, to share with me really tempered the, the anguish that, that ensued. Crystal was out of town. She was with our daughter up north at the time. You know, that's a black hole. What, what can I say? That's a sleep. That's many sleepless nights. You just have to, to press forward. And in, in fact, we, 
as you mentioned, it was been two years and a day. And there are many people who remember that date and they've come over and, and there've been many well-wishers and boxes of cookies and things that have shown them. Uh, and that's all really great. We, we sure appreciate that. And, and, and please remind me to come back to the, you know, the support we felt of our neighbors if I fail to do that. Um, but that first year, and, and again, the second year, didn't feel like a sad day. That felt like a day of triumph that, speaking for myself, that I had made it a year and that I have made it two years. And the reunion with Seth is not in the past. It's forward. That's the only, that's the only gear we get in mortality. We get forward. We don't get a reverse. So every day that passes, we're one day closer to the reunion with our son. Well, I think that's so interesting, as you said, Mike, that apparently he was given that brief opportunity to say something to to help you understand that he knew that it was a mistake. Um, and that, as you said, that tempered the anguish. And I would imagine that was the beginning of some tender mercies that came to your family but for you, Crystal, being out of town and getting this news over the phone, what were your initial thoughts, feelings that day? Well, um, also, I want to just point out that Seth said this was a mistake, but he didn't say it was an accident. There's mm-hmm. a, a distinction that's important. He, he did it intentionally, but then immediately stepping through the veil recognized it was a mistake which there's a lot to be learned from that yes so um well he michael called me on the phone i mean i collapsed you know on the phone and couldn't speak and um in the meantime michael had called the called 911 first and then he called me and while we were on the phone the emergency responders came And so he had to get off the phone with me um, so that he could talk with them. They were able to, through medical means, they, they had um, managed to get his heart beating again and took him to the hospital. Um, And so then I thought, Oh, maybe this will be a different scenario. Maybe this is me. I'm now going to be the mother of perhaps someone who needs constant care from now on. And, and I, I, my friend had rushed over, I I was up North with my daughter, but you know, we have all these friends in Lehigh. My very best friend came over and was with me and I was talking to her about, okay, we can do this. I can do this. We can, um, I can take care of him constantly. And I was already doing it in my mind, but then shortly after the phone call came that no, he had, he had already stepped through the veil fully. He was not coming back. I stayed up that night at my daughter's house because I didn't want to drive in February in the dark at 5 PM. It was or 6 PM or whatever it was. So I stayed that night with her. My son-in-law gave me a blessing and in the blessing, he said, among other things that Seth was welcomed into the arms of the savior. Hmm. And when he said it, I saw it. So I knew that it had, I mean, I felt it in my heart and I saw it, that it had happened. Well, the next day 
um, my daughter and I were driving down in the same car. She was expecting a baby at the time. And so I had to keep stopping because she was getting sick. <laughs> so I had to keep stopping for her. And then, but her husband was following in a car behind. I said to her, please just let me drive by myself because I got to just get there. I've just got to get there. Um, I promise I'm okay. You guys are behind me. We'll be fine. Um, driving farther and farther south. So from Lehigh to St. George, my hands were going numb. The farther south I drove, they were numb with fear. Hmm. I didn't want to, I didn't know what I was going to face. And of course I was thinking we're going to have to move. I don't want to stay in that house. How could we possibly stay there? And I was so scared of what I was going to feel entering the house. Well, I stepped through the front door and completely forgot that I'd been afraid at all. The spirit of the Lord was in our home so powerfully. I just didn't feel I'd forgotten even that I was afraid. Well, then, as Mike mentioned, Seth passed away in our bedroom. So then I kind of avoided the bedroom for the first 15 or 20 minutes. And then I thought, well, I need to go back there. The carpet had been removed and there was a part of the wall that had been removed. It was so the room didn't look normal. It was just it was completely empty of all furniture and nothing was there. And I was nervous. I was so scared to step into that bedroom. But then again, I stepped over the threshold of the bedroom. And my first thought was, this is my new temple because the Holy Spirit was just so strong. And then the image of Seth in the arms of the Savior entered my mind again. And I knew that it was because immediately stepping through the veil, Seth was embraced by the Lord, that I could feel the Spirit so strongly in my room. And then any thought of moving was out of the question. Why would I ever leave this place where the Holy Ghost is so strong and where we can feel near our child as well and, and near the Lord? And and because we didn't have carpet and it was the carpet we had was going to take two weeks to be replaced. I kept going into this bath mat in our bed in our bathroom to pray because I didn't have carpet to kneel on in the bedroom. So I kept going into the bathroom. And I had some remarkable experiences on that bath mat, kneeling and praying where that became a holy place. Thank you for sharing all of that. For people who are looking from the outside in, they, they know that you have a son who has just taken his life and they can only imagine the despair that could be felt. And yet you're describing this experience, having your home become a, a holy place and feeling the spirit so strongly and having this vision of your son in the Savior's embrace. I believe that is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we experience this peace that is beyond all understanding. Today in our Relief Society lesson, we were reading the talk by Elder Matthew Holland titled, The Exquisite Gift of the Son. But something just came to mind from that talk where they said, where he said, For anyone today with pains so intense or so unique that you feel no one else could fully appreciate them, you may have a point. There may be no family member, friend, or priesthood leader, however sensitive and well-meaning each may be, who knows exactly what you are feeling or has the precise words to help you heal. But he goes on, 
But know this, there is one who understands perfectly what you are experiencing, who is mightier than all the earth and who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think. The process will unfold in His way and on His schedule, but Christ stands ready always to heal every ounce and aspect of your agony. As well-meaning as those around you were, it was the Savior. He was the only one that had the ability to take this agony from you. And not only that, but part of the anguish that we felt was that we didn't even know our son was struggling. We had no idea what he was battling internally. But to know that the moment he stepped through the veil, the Savior embraced him and the Savior understood perfectly was a great comfort to me. Now, having said that, I always want to be very careful that we don't give people the idea that in some way taking your own life is a solution. Because while Seth was immediately comforted by the Lord, I'm confident he was then escorted down the hallway to the class where you have to go to learn what's next because he still felt the exact same way. Yeah. Having stepped through the veil as he felt before. And let's not forget that Mike heard Seth say in his own voice, this was a mistake. It was not a solution. Yeah. Thank you for emphasizing that crystal. Uh, This is such, again, a sensitive and difficult topic because we, I, I think the way that we view suicide has really changed a lot in the church. And you would know better than me. And perhaps you can explain this a little bit more, but there used to be some, I think, myths about what suicide meant for someone's salvation that I think have been debunked more recently by our current leaders. But we don't want people to ever feel like, as you said, that this is a, is a solution because life is a gift and we were sent here for a reason to grow and learn and progress. And this is the best place to do that. And so in your learning about suicide and what, what leaders have said, past and present, how has your understanding changed? If it's a mistake, let's just establish that it was. Seth feels that, we feel that, that was a mistake. There are not too many mistakes that anyone can make that cannot be fixed by the atonement of our Savior. Whether it's kicking your neighbor's dog or in some irrational, juvenile, anxious moment of regret, you take your own life. Can the atonement not fix that? Surely they're, they're forgivable. As you mentioned previously, um, common beliefs that that was, you know, the end of the road for a soul. I don't, I think that flies in the face of what we know about the atonement and Christ's power to redeem. That old notion puts that sin, that mistake in a, in a category that's not reachable by the atonement. That just doesn't happen. And I think that it would be really important for people who have questions about that to look and see whether leaders of the church are saying about it currently, because I know that the communication from our leaders has changed regarding suicide. And I believe, as you said, Mike, that um, the atonement reaches far beyond often what we give it credit for, and that um, we can have hope for our loved ones who have passed from this life in that way. Now, as you had mentioned earlier, it doesn't do a lot of good to 
ask yourself, you know, if I had said this or done this, would it have changed the outcome? But I know that for individuals who have lost loved ones to suicide, they may go through a period of questioning, like what signs did we miss? Are, are we to blame? And on the flip side, some might blame God or others for such a, a tragedy occurring in their lives. I'm curious, did either of you ask some of those questions and how did you navigate them? I don't think that was really much of a, as much of a thing as, as some might think. I know how precious our agency is to our Heavenly Father. And even when we misuse it, He doesn't interfere. And therefore, He let these events unfold the way that the participants um, made them unfold. You know, the looking back, I, I've, I've tried to, to minimize that. I, I, I do it because I'm human. But I, I try not to. I can't change it. Um, if I, I miss something, clearly I did. Then I'm sorry. I ask for forgiveness for whatever I did poorly or didn't do that might have led up to this. And that's that's all that I can do. One thing that we haven't mentioned is that at the time you were serving as bishop, correct? Yes, Again, another myth <laughs> that we might uh, pass around in the church is that if you're, if you're living a righteous life, you'll be spared from some of these, these heart-wrenching tragedies that, again, only happen to other people. I guess going back to that talk uh, by Elder Holland, he said that brothers and sisters suffering in righteousness helps qualify you for rather than distinguishes you from God's elect. That if we are following in the Savior's footsteps, you know, his cross that he's asked us to carry is heavy, that we won't be shielded from some of these very difficult things that might happen in our lives. But what I love so much about your story, this is, again, what's so comforting to me because I've dealt with fear sometimes in my life, concerned of what might lie ahead, the pain, the difficulty. But I'm coming to believe more in the, in the Savior's ability to succor me through anything. And whether it be my own making or someone else's, that the Lord can sustain me. Can you share more how you felt succored by Christ and sustained by the gospel through the last two years? One of the greatest gifts we've been given is the knowledge that every time we turn to the Lord, he is there for us without exception. And it's, it's immediate. When I taught primary, I used to teach the kids about, you know, you practice the piano so you can be ready for the recital and you go to soccer practice each week. So you're ready for the game on Saturday. We live the gospel principles daily so that when these life experiences happen, we're ready for it. We've, we've been practicing it and here, here we go. It's game day or it's recital time. Each time we turned to the Lord, we were completely filled with the Holy spirit in our, in our hearts, our minds were comforted. You know, it, it, it seemed probably to people that we were wading through a great dark Valley, just a dark, dark place. But in reality, the Lord had, allowed us as we turned to him 
He opened our eyes to see things that we'd never considered before. So our perspective was clearer and brighter. And I felt not that I was in a valley, but that I was on a mountaintop with the things that I was seeing and feeling privately, just kneeling in prayer constantly. And it was constant. We were on our knees throughout the day for weeks and weeks, just all day long going back into the bedroom and needing to pray because we couldn't get, you know, it was just too daunting to try to pretend like everything was fine because it wasn't fine. Every time we went back and knelt and prayed, we were strengthened, uplifted, and could walk back into the rest of the house and interact with people with true joy in our hearts, which was a miracle, an absolute miracle. We know that part of that was the prayers of of our friends and neighbors and family members, their prayers sustained us. We felt their prayers being answered. As they prayed for us to be comforted, we were comforted. Hmm. I would imagine that as you healed and as you grieved, you also had to, to choose to forgive your son. Has that been a part of your healing process? And if so, how have you worked through that? Bearing any, any, you know, uh, unpleasant thoughts towards my son, was that was never an issue. Not for one minute did I feel anything but, but sadness at his passing. I never felt angry at him uh, in, in any way. I did have one epiphany along the way, um, and that was that I needed to, to pull myself together and get on with life because it was painful to our son to see us so distraught. So there was never, I never felt any bitterness towards him in any degree, only that, uh, that our progress was, would help him be happy. And that brings to mind, I mean, you have uh, two other kids at home this period, right? When all of this is going on? <laughs> Our son was on his mission in Taiwan. The, the one who just graduated from high school was out of the country. So that was a phone call that Michael made also. And, and our oldest son was in the, he's in the army reserves, but they'd activated his unit. He was in Poland. Poland. So oh, we had wow. kids all over the globe and one at home. And I will say the Lord was so merciful in the the unfolding of the day itself because Ben wasn't home, thank heaven, and he didn't see any of, you know, the aftermath. He didn't see any of that. He was away uh, playing basketball with friends. And so when he came to the house because his dad called him, he stayed outside. He just didn't, he didn't have to see any of the actual anything happening in, in the house. And, Mm -hmm. and I'm so grateful that, that I wasn't here. I mean, that maybe that sounds bad, but the Lord knew that Mike could somehow get through that. And I'm so thankful that, that I didn't have to, none of us saw anything except for Mike. Yeah. And so you felt like those were additional tender mercies for you and 
you felt that the Lord helped your other children, protected them in some ways from some yes. of the, the difficulty that, that could have posed. One thing I meant to say that I, I didn't was one of the, the most difficult things was to see the breadth of the, the pain that that caused and, and the hundreds of faces of his classmates and friends and our friends. That was truly difficult to see. At the funeral. At, at the funeral and those who came, that was really hard. Um, at the, and on the other side of that same coin is the, the strength and the love that we felt from those same people. Seth's favorite color was green. And so what someone had decided to do was tie a green ribbon around every tree, mailbox, and signpost between here and the school. <laughs> um, there was a, a literal parade of people in our street one afternoon, all wearing green. Somehow, somebody got news to the Green Bay Packers, Seth's favorite football team, and this football showed up in the mail with it signed by every player on the team. I don't know if we're quite sure how that happened. The support of the of the people around us um, was was remarkable. And as is usually the case, prayers are often answered through the people around us, and this was no exception. That was part of what was most painful and difficult, although it, it was what healed us too, because going to church, so going to church, you know, as we said, Mike is currently still bishop, and he was bishop at the time, and so he went to church that Sunday and you go where you're supposed to be and Sundays are for church. And so I went to church too. And, and you're surrounded by people who are mourning with you and it's excruciating. It's also so healing. These dear people were crying with us and it, it takes so much out of you to be with people who are so sad on your behalf. But I, I want to testify that attending church in difficult times is extremely healing because of the spirit that you feel in church, in sacrament meeting, and being surrounded by people who also love you and care about you. It's hard. It is extremely hard to be around. You know, everyone's crying and it makes you cry more. But I testify that there is healing in that also. I, I think it would have been a grave mistake for us to just crawl in a hole, which I think is the, the natural human reaction. We want to hide from the pain. Um, so I, I understand why people do that. And we've seen it happen. It's unfortunate. And, and that healing process is so much slower if indeed it happens at all. As Crystal said, I believe it's it's critical that you just you get out and you keep going. Well, and a thought came to me as you were talking about, you know, being where you're supposed to be with the members of the church and giving them an opportunity to fulfill the covenant that they've made to mourn with those that mourn. I know that whenever we are fulfilling a covenant that we have made, there is power there. The Lord can can bless us in unique ways as we gather and as we comfort 
And again, as we're keeping covenants, and so I think you're absolutely right that the natural instinct is to want to hide because it is incredibly exhausting, I'm sure, to be among people who are crying and hugging and because they're in pain too. And so you're kind of all feeding off of each other (laughs) in that type of a situation. But again, healing together as well. And so I really like that you bring that up because all the things that you've shared with me as far as what you did immediately after and moving forward, you spent so much time on your knees and that you faced the very difficult thing, Crystal, of going inside your home, even though you were terrified. And yet what you found was the spirit and and a temple-like atmosphere. So being able to, to trust that the things that we have been taught, like you said, Crystal, in primary, <laughs> to continue to practice those principles in our most dire of circumstances and have our eyes opened to see what the Lord can do, the miracles that He can do as we continue to be faithful in those very hard moments. You've already alluded to many of these experiences, um, but it's my understanding that you you just had a number of powerful spiritual experiences since Seth passed that have broadened your understanding and perspective of the plan. Is there anything more that you would like to share uh, about that? When, and this is remarkable too, considering that temples have been closed in this past year, but while our son was on his mission, we were looking forward to to our son coming home from his mission because we thought um, by then a year will have passed and we can take Seth through the temple. And won't it be special to have Daniel do that when he gets home from his mission? And one day, Mike was prompted to look up in the church handbook, what do you need to do to prepare someone's name and and information to take them through the temple uh, once they've passed away? And he came across information that showed, depending on circumstances, you don't have to wait a year. I was excited to hear this. And I said, did you, do you feel like Seth is ready to go through the temple? And that's why you um, were prompted to, to look into that. And he said, I'm not sure. I, I think so. And, and I went upstairs. I often read my scriptures in Seth's room because it gives me a reason to be in there. And so I was reading scriptures and then I felt compelled to pray. And I don't usually pray after I read the scriptures. I'm, I'm really not that's spiritual. And, mm-hmm. But I just, I, but I read the scriptures and then I just felt like I should pray. And I thought, well, I don't even have anything to pray about. I'm doing fine right now. And, but I just felt strongly I needed to pray. So I knelt down and all I did was begin the prayer. And clearly Seth wanted me to know something because I began, Oh, actually I'm, I'm getting two accounts mixed up a little bit. In this, in this instance, um, I was praying about if Seth was ready to, to go through the temple. And I was given the understanding that, yes, he was ready and eager to go through the temple. Daniel was able to go through the temple in Taiwan for his brother. And that was really special. While he was on his mission, the mission president um, even officiated at that session. And Seth was able to go through the temple with his brother. Then we had a ward temple night and Mike had an experience. I had a temple, a a family name, and I was doing 
some of the ordinances for this individual. And um, I had an unexpected strong impression that not only did that individual accept and appreciate the work that I was doing there, but that Seth was with him. That was quite a surprise to me. That's something I'd never before considered, but nonetheless, I knew that that was real. That was given to me so that, so that I could know it, so that I could take peace in knowing that. So then um, after that temple experience that Mike had, I, he shared that with me and I felt the, the truthfulness of that experience. And then, then I was praying or reading the scriptures in Seth's room one day and felt compelled to pray. And as I did, this is the time that Seth was clearly wanting to tell me something. I understood that he was teaching in the spirit world and he was having experiences. I could hear Seth's voice in my mind. It was not an audible thing. It was in my mind, like Daniel, like Daniel. And I just felt the joy that Seth was having preaching the gospel in the spirit world, like Daniel, like Daniel, because his brother was still on his mission at the time. So his brother was able to take him through the temple. Mike had the experience of knowing Seth was standing with a gentleman who was receiving the gospel ordinances right at that moment. And then I, I was given the opportunity to understand he was helping preach the gospel in the spirit world and the joy that he felt like Daniel, like Daniel. It was, Mm -hmm. it was very cool. Wow. That is incredible. You know, as you share your story, I hope that as others are listening, I think so often we get so, is it myopic? Is that the word President Nelson used? Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) We get So focused on the here and now. Obviously, life is full of the trivial and the mundane and the difficult and things that might really diminish our ability to to see, to comprehend this beautiful, expansive plan that our Father has for all of His children. Crystal, you had shared a story prior to us doing this interview about really missing Seth I would love for you to share that story, if you wouldn't mind. About six weeks after Seth passed away, I was feeling very weighed down, recognizing that we were coming up on the two-month mark of his death. And has it only been two months? It seems like it's been a year already. How can I do this? How can I do this? And feeling just really weighed down by the time, that time is marked and And how am I supposed to endure another year, two years, 10 years? How am I supposed to do this? I went again to my bedroom and knelt and prayed. And as I poured out my heart to the Lord again, it's only been two months. How am I supposed to do this for years and years? An account came to my mind from the scriptures of the account of Lot and his wife leaving Sodom and Gomorrah and his wife turned to look back and turned to a pillar of salt. And the spirit taught me in very clear words, look forward, look forward. And I felt that message and I, I received it a few days later, 
a friend needed me to watch her little boy. She was so apologetic because she knew it had only been a couple months since we, you know, we were still very new in this new, new life that we're facing. She was so apologetic. She couldn't find anyone to watch her little one-year-old while she took her four-year-old on a field trip with his preschool. She would only be gone 90 minutes. And I said, yes, of course I'll watch him. I'm happy to. And when I was watching him, he realized his mom was gone and he started to cry. And, and it was super sad because he, he's one year old and he missed his mom and he was just crying. And, and I was just kind of rocking him and it's okay. It's okay. And trying to comfort him. And then I would be able to distract him for a few minutes, but he'd remember again and he would start to cry again. And I just kept trying to comfort him. I put some toys on the floor and he was trying to put this ball in a toy and his little chin was just quivering as he was reaching <laughs> forward to put the ball in this toy. And his little chin was just so sad. And I was rubbing his back thinking, oh, he just doesn't understand. It's only 90 minutes. It's only 90 minutes. And with that, I sat up straight. And again, the spirit touched my mind and my heart. Crystal, Michael, it's only 90 minutes. I know it feels long, but I promise you, it's only 90 minutes. The Lord is always ready to comfort us. And we do have such a small understanding. But as we look forward with an eternal perspective, this time on, on earth is such a brief time. It's only 90 minutes in the grand scheme of things. And the Lord is always trying to comfort us through our difficult times. Let us turn to him in, in joyful times and, and in hard times. And he'll always, always be there. Love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, with all of this said, again, you've, you've experienced, I think, just this dichotomy of this exquisite pain and exquisite joy in many ways through this period. But I know that, Crystal, you wanted to emphasize uh, the importance of not glorifying suicide and recognizing the seriousness of, of this choice. One of the, the prophecies that I see coming true is that men's hearts are failing them. My first question would be for anyone who may be contemplating shortening their life here, having experienced losing a loved one in this way, what counsel would you give to that individual? You know, I felt um, like I, I was addressing Seth's friends more than anything at this at the funeral service we had. And that was the key point was that he said it was a mistake. That was absolutely clear. And that no matter how insignificant they may feel, they feel an incredibly important role in the world and they're precious to their parents beyond their ability to comprehend it. And you said in, at the funeral, if any of you think the world would be better without you, you're wrong. And if you think your families would be better off without you, you're wrong. You know, we've, we've been so blessed with experiences of comfort and strengthening but we don't know what Seth had to endure once he, he felt the same way when he stepped through the veil and he immediately recognized it was a mistake. 
Here in mortality, we have families to help us. We have friends, we have bishops, we have counselors, we have medication. There are things that we have here that are not accessible on the other side of the veil. Yeah. Well, and I think you made a really excellent point, Crystal, that once Seth did step through the veil, he still was going to have to deal with some of those challenges that he was trying to run away from here. Yes. And that the same spirit that we have here is the one that we take with us into the next life. And so, and I truly believe that this life is the best place for us to become what the Lord has invited us to become, which is like his son. And I believe in a, again, a big and merciful plan where even beyond the veil, there will still be repentance and change and progress. But here is where we can flex our muscles the most. And here we have unique opportunities to bring those nearest and dearest to us close to the Lord. Take advantage of this gift and to count every day as a blessing. What counsel or direction would you give to individuals who have lost a close loved one to suicide? I would say two things. One is that everyone is still learning on both sides of the veil. Learning continues and the loved ones are learning and those here in mortality are learning. And we can always choose to turn to the Lord or, or not. But the way to have peace and comfort is to turn to the Lord. And sometimes it has to be 20 times a day in prayer, but comfort is to be found in the Savior, Jesus Christ. We can absolutely testify of that. And again, I I know you had said um, people looking on the outside saw that horrible thing that had happened. We, our son took his life, but what happens when we turn to the Lord is he fills us with the Holy ghost. And so it is such a sad thing. There's no question about that. And it's, you have to face it daily because there's a hole in our family here in this house. We should still have another child here, but the Lord will carry you through. And when we, when we do turn to him, um, that's something that people can't necessarily see on the outside. They they can only see the the tragedy. But I testify, we both can testify of the reality of the Holy Ghost that uplifts and strengthen us, strengthens us when we turn to, to the Lord. Again, it's, and, and this is the gospel according to Mike, there's no rear view mirror in mortality. We spend so much time trying to look in that rearview mirror and wish that things were different and it doesn't do us any good. Um, forward is, is the way back to, to those that we've, that we've lost. And it's important for us to learn to learn to be happy here on earth, despite the things that come and go, because life is predominantly a very happy experience. And, you know, I asked myself if, if I'd never had, a fifth child, I wouldn't have had to go through this. And I think that would have been a really bad trade. Hmm. I'll take the 14 years I've got and then, and then the tragic end and the knowledge that I have that we'll be together again. I've, 
I'm happy with that. I'm okay with that. Um, one of the, maybe this is weird of me to think this way, but one of the things that's comforting me about the scriptures is that everybody we read about him is in the scriptures is dead. All of them, <laughs> the good guys and the bad guys, they've, they've all gone to, to receive the reward of their deeds and mortality. Um, without exception. And that will absolutely happen to every one of us. Um, I have no doubt of that. You know, the savior was, uh, he put his seal on his ministry by laying down his own life and taking it up again to say nothing of what he did in Gethsemane. And when he says that he will raise us all up, I absolutely believe him because he has absolute power and that's why he came into the world. So the reality of a future reunion to me is not, it's never in doubt without that knowledge. I I'm going to confess. I don't know how people deal with it. Um, but it is my testimony that the savior lives and he governs and all of these all of these things are in his hands and they will work out. You put that so well, Mike. Stop looking in the rearview mirror. <laughs> Look forward. And it is in Christ that we can find the hope to do so. Well, again, I'm, I'm just inspired by the faith that I hear from the two of you and by the Lord's mercies that he has extended you through what could have been a very, it's still been a hard two years, no doubt, but he has sustained you. What I find interesting before I ask you this last question, you know, I hear a lot of stories from people, not just because I do this podcast, <laughs> but I'm just kind of a story collector. That's kind of part of who I am. And I've seen very clearly how the same tragedy can draw one closer to God and one away from Him. It's all about our agency, what we will choose to do. And so we hear the scripture that we won't be tempted beyond what we are able to bear. I think we forget that we will be given challenges, trials that could break us if we choose to try and do it on our own. It is only with the Savior, yoked with Him, that we can move through the challenges of life unbroken and with peace. Your testimony is just a reminder to me that no matter what comes, come what may, if we choose Him, we can bear all things because He will help us do that. Thank you so much for your testimony, for your example. In all of this, why are you still rowing and choosing faith in Christ and his restored church. Is there any other thing we could choose? <laughs> I guess that's not a very good answer. Um, <laughs> we, I learned this a long time ago that even when I had no apparent options to pull myself out of situations or problems that I would, I would rather resolve, even when I had failed in every effort and I had no ideas left, I have one choice left and that is do I give up or do I keep on fighting and 
I remember a time years ago, and this was a, this was a job challenge. I had a job that I hated, but I had, again, kids and endless stream of diapers and cans of formula. Um, and I had to pay the mortgage. I had to keep the roof over these kids' heads. And, and I had a job that, that did that, but I hated it. I loathed it. And uh, I wanted out of it in any way that I could. And, and I was at my wit's end. I couldn't find my way out. And I remember driving home one day and uh, having this conversation half with the Lord, half with myself. And I said, you know what, if I got to do this, then I'll do it. I can't fail my family. I won't give up. And interestingly enough, it wasn't too long after that um, moment that I found my way out or, or the Lord showed me the way out. But the choice to give up or continue is always ours. It is a matter of agency. We, we can choose to continue or we can choose to, to shrivel up and hide and live a life that would, that's it's infinitely more painful than it has to be. The alternative is unthinkable. We are here to, to grow and to have joy. This is how we can feel joy even after unspeakable sorrow. We're not done yet. Part of us still being on earth after our son has passed prematurely through the veil is to help up, uplift others. A friend of ours said after Seth passed away, I was talking about how can we go about our daily routine? It's so sad. It's so sad. And he said, you'll develop a new routine, but maybe it's good that it feels sad because it shows how much you love him. You almost want the whole and I think that that's true. You talked about being unbroken, that through the Savior, we can endure this without being broken. But in fact, I think we are broken and we have parts of us missing, parts of our heart. Our hearts are missing with our, our one son on the other side of the veil. But it's a testimony to him how much we love him, that we feel a hole in our hearts. And it's a testimony of our love of the Savior and of his love for us that he fills the hole. And that's why we keep going. We're not done yet. There's more work for us to do. Well, thank you so much, Mike and Crystal. Continue on sharing your hope and your faith. I know that you are blessing so many lives. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at churchofjesuschrist underscore sr underscore podcast and on Facebook at churchofjesuschrist sr podcast. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, that would help us spread the word about still rowing. Thanks again for listening.